Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Um, so from today, we're going to be reading 1 Corinthians 4, uh, the entire chapter. Uh, I'm reading it in the ESV, but um, any version is helpful. Um, it's towards the end of the book. So if you turn to 4, 1 Corinthians 4, um, and we'll get started on that. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against me, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before this time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you do? What do you have that you did not receive? If it If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to vomish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child to the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Amen. Thank you, Ruth and um, and Jacko. Yeah, thank you for the invitation to come and speak. It's um, yeah, it is really wonderful to to be able to do this. It's one of the things I love about um, uh, my role. Is it does. Um, uh, it means I do get to visit different church communities, and um, it's the first time I've, I've been with you guys, and um, yeah, thank you for your warm welcome already. I uh, do keep your Bible open, and um, we'll be working through uh, 1 Corinthians 4. I'll um, mostly be, I should have checked this beforehand, I'll mostly be reading out of the NIV, so I hope that's okay, but um, uh, um, that's just in case the words sound different than what you're looking at. And I have to say, I've never preached in a church with a disco ball before, so... <laughs> I can, yeah, can you? I don't know. Like, I'm just expecting that'll happen at some point during my talk. When I've gone too far, they just put the disco ball on and then it's time to sit down. But um, I can cross that one off the, um, off the bucket list. So that's fantastic. All right. Um, well, we, um, uh, as we get into this, uh, get into this passage, um, 
One of the things I want to reflect on is, um, is division because it's kind of the topic that um, a division and unity is something that's been tying the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians together. And uh, in many ways, like 2020 has been a very interesting year. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. But, um, you know, we've had different experiences of that, obviously. Uh, some of us have probably found 2020 better than expected. Uh, I've talked to some people who are in that category and some people who have found it much much more challenging than they would have ever expected uh, to, to find this year. Uh, but no one can complain that it's been uneventful, uh, can we? One of the things that uh, has really stood out to me from this year, though, is just how easy it is to get people to divide and to take sides and form uh, very... Uh, I guess vocal factions is one of the things that, as this year's rolled on, uh, it's just been very interesting to see uh, how easy it is to get people to tribalise, I suppose is one way you could put it. Uh, The Black Lives movement has made a bit of an impact in Australian news. It's spurred a few rallies here. But if you're following American news at the moment, uh, you'll be aware of how uh, serious the situation is there. Rioting, looting, cities on fire... Um, for months now, in some cases, the United States of America is anything but united, uh, sadly. It's, um, uh, yeah, as far as I can tell, things are, are, are fairly out of control in lots of parts of, of America at the moment. And so the slogan of this year, we're all in this together, that's something great to aim for. And um, at the same time, the reality is more, I think, pick a topic and see just how easy it is to watch people take sides and fight with each other and disagree. It's been a real eye-opener. Like, you pick a topic, masks, should we all be wearing masks? Lockdowns, it's just the flu. Um, you know, it's been a real eye-opener for me and helped me to make sense of something that we see here in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, a church which is divided and, and factionalised. Because Christian people are hardly immune from this very human tendency to divide, to disunity, to tribalism. Uh, it's an, it seems to be a deeply embedded part of our uh, sinful humanity. Uh, you've been looking at 1 Corinthians over the last few weeks, if you've been here um, and following along with it. There are many pastoral problems in Corinth, but a key one across these first chapters is this divisiveness around um, leaders with big, impressive personalities. Uh, And as Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he knows this shouldn't be the case. This should not be the case for Christ's people. He wants to see unity, uh, not around their favourite leader. Uh, They're good at uniting, but just like around one person each. Uh, He wants to see them unite around the right things, around the things of the gospel. Unity around Christ and his cross. And by the time we get to chapter 4, Paul has already come at this issue from various angles. So if uh, if you are just dipping in this week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to hear some of the other ways that Paul tries to encourage unity. But as we come to chapter 4, we're arriving at Paul's fifth attempt uh, to foster proper unity around, uh, around Christ and his cross in this church at Corinth, Uh, which will obviously be very helpful for us Uh, Two, as we think about how to protect and promote the unity of this church around the right things. A summary of this chapter would be something like, uh, you'll do much better 
If you know how to think biblically about your leaders, uh, you'll do much better at fostering and protecting unity if you know how to think biblically about your leaders and if your leaders know how to think biblically. Uh, That would be kind of just a a one-sentence summary of what we're going to see in this chapter. Uh, So so Paul's focus is going to be to help us to understand uh, who our church leaders are are from from God's point of view, uh, what they're meant to be like, what their job is and isn't. In some ways, uh, Paul's approach is a, is a kind of Goldilocks solution. Uh, so the Corinthians, they're, they're obsessed and even arrogant, as we heard at the end of that chapter, arrogant about their pastors and their church leaders, the so-called super apostles that we've come across already. Um, but the solution, uh, as we're about to see, it's not to swing the pendulum the opposite way to where the Corinthians are. They're, they're um, holding their leaders perhaps in too um, high regard, but the, the solution is not to go the opposite way Uh, which I think might be more of a problem for us Aussies. Uh, We do tend to be people with a tall poppy syndrome, and we do like to keep everything on the same level, very egalitarian. We call our PM ScoMo and our lead pastor Jacko, and um, we, um, you know, the priesthood of all believers, it is a fantastic thing to embrace, of course. Every believer uh, truly does have a part to play in ministry uh, and the body of Christ, not just the ordained or the, the paid leaders. That's, that's fantastic. We need to hold on to that truth. But to run too far down that line, we can be left with an equally unbiblical disregard or disrespect for our leaders. So Paul's solution is it's a kind of a Goldilocks solution uh, that's not too distorted in one direction or the other, um, but just right, in line with God's intentions for us and fitting for the life of God's people. So let's jump into the text and see how this works. What we're going to see is Paul giving us four key questions uh, to reflect or to ask, to reflect on as we think about our pastors or our church leaders. Paul's obviously talking about himself here. Paul's an apostle, um, which is unique uh, to him and in church history. But his reasoning, I think, does extend to to pastors, even though um, our pastors today will not be apostles. The four key questions are this, if you're taking notes. Um, I'll highlight them again as we go through. The four key key questions Paul gives us to ask about pastors are, are they living as servants of Christ? Are they holding out the word of the gospel faithfully? Are they willing to suffer unjustly? And do they love and lead like a father? So are they living as servants of Christ? Are they holding out the word of the gospel faithfully? Are they willing to suffer unjustly? And do they love and lead like a father? All right, so question one, are they they living as servants of Christ? Chapter four, verse one says this. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. So we see the first thing that a pastor must be, if they're going to model their ministry on Paul, is they must be a servant. Uh, and of course, Paul here is simply following the lead of Jesus, the one who came not to be served, but to serve. Uh, sometimes we'll, you'll see discussions about this, um, about this verse, uh, noting that it uses um, a, a Greek word behind this word, servant, which uh, I guess is used of rowers on the bottom level of a ship with three levels of rowers. So I don't know if you've seen these, these things where you've got um, yeah, a very large ship rowed by three levels of rowers, the word um, uh, for servant here can 
be the same word that's used for the ones at the very bottom level here. So perhaps highlighting that these servants occupy a very humble position, but uh, that technical sense is not necessarily what the Corinthians would have pictured as they read Paul's letter, because of course Paul is not talking to them about rowing a ship, um, but about uh, life in the church. And so I think just the ordinary sense of servant will do fine here. The important thing is to note who they serve. Did you see that? They're called to be servants. Yes, they are to be those who serve others. They serve the church. But what does the verse say? Whose servants are they? They're servants of Christ. They're servants of Christ. And, and, and that is important, I think, because it reminds us that our pastors don't work for us. Primarily, they work for Christ. They are his servants and answer primarily to him. This is actually better for those uh, in the church community. Uh, and it's an important point to grasp. In verse 3, Paul explains how this plays out in his own ministry and thinking. So if you, if you look at verse 3, he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. You see, because Paul sees himself as a servant of Christ, it follows that he must care most about his master's judgment or assessment of him. And that's really freeing. That's really freeing for Paul in two ways. It frees him from feeling like he has to pander to or play along with what the Corinthians want. They're not happy with Paul. They want him to be different than Paul is, but Paul is free to actually serve Christ and to care about Christ's assessment of him. Uh, they want to be left alone to do things their way with their impressive super apostles and, to take, and, and with their own take on what appropriate conduct looks like for the believer. But but Paul doesn't have to care if they judge him for his correction, which is coming in this letter. Uh, he doesn't care if they judge his corrections because he's not living to please them at the end of the day. He's living to please Christ. And so he's free to be bold and to tell them what they really need uh, to hear to help them to grow in Christian maturity. And secondly, it frees them from fear of, it frees Paul from fear of unfair judgment. Because he answers to Christ, he knows that he'll be judged fairly. Christ knows everything exhaustively. And Christ judges fairly. Verse 5, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. It's interesting here, isn't it, that Paul um, says, I don't even trust my own judgment. That he knows that all of us are prone to be forgetful or to deceive ourselves about our motives or our actions. He knows, actually, that some of us are far too critical on ourselves. We judge ourselves more harshly than Christ would. And so Paul says, I'm just going to be content uh, to leave, leave that until judgment day and let Christ do the judging. Now, of course, being, um, being freed in these ways, it's not suggesting that pastors or any of us really should be flippant about our conduct. Uh, they are 
a servant of Christ. And Christ died for his church. He loves the church uh, more than any of us ever will. He cares a great deal about how our leaders uh, go about their lives. So there is a very real warning uh, here for any of us who have pastoral responsibility. Uh, Be very mindful of everything you do because it's known to Christ and one day will be revealed for all to see. Now, personally, I find that both, uh, uh, both uh, terrifying and wonderful, I think is as best I can put it. Terrifying and wonderful. Jesus is the best possible judge because he knows completely and is completely impartial, but he is still judge. And that is meant to motivate us to live carefully and with great diligence. I come across a quip, which is apparently from C.S. Lewis, but I couldn't... Um, actually check the source. I wonder if this might be one of those things that has kind of, you know, been attributed to him. But um, the the quip is this, there there will be three surprises on Judgment Day that some you'd expect to be there are missing, that some who who are unexpected will be present, and that you're there. Uh, (laughs) Which I kind of like. Um, Okay, so first question, do they live as servants of Christ? Second question, are they holding out the word of the gospel faithfully? Uh, We see this in the second part of verse 1 and into verse 2. And um, don't worry, we're spending more time in these first two and we'll move more quickly through the rest of it. So uh, second part of verse 1 into verse 2. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. It's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Okay, so here we see that in addition to being a servant, Paul considers himself as someone entrusted with something very precious indeed, and that is the mysteries God has revealed. Paul here is referring to those things which throughout Old Testament times were hidden, but have now been made known through revelation. For us, that means the things that God has made known to us through his word. Things that relate to Christ, uh, to being saved by his cross, to his resurrection, the revelation that both Jew and Gentile are welcomed into the one family of God. They're part of one body, one new humanity with Christ as its head. And, says Paul, because I've been entrusted with such precious news, it is required that I must prove faithful in holding that news out to everyone. Um, Paul clearly means this for more than himself. He says in verse 2, those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. We've been entrusted with this message. Certainly our pastors have been entrusted with this message, but we all have. Uh, it, it applies to, to all of us. We have, um, we have been given something which is very precious, and we must hold that out faithfully. But pastors in particular um, have a charge here. They are not free to change the message or to modify it to fit their preferences, the flavour of the month, uh, whatever their listeners want to hear. They are to hold out the revelation of God and to do so faithfully. People might prefer uh, fancier philosophy, more politically correct rhetoric, more entertaining oratory. I don't know, whatever it is. But what the people of God deeply need is for their pastors to serve them faithfully by teaching the word of the gospel. Uh, this, teaches us, this tells us something very, um, very important about the, nature of, um, uh, about the nature of pastoral ministry. It's primarily a Bible teaching job. It involves more than that, certainly, but the pastor must be a Bible teacher. 
You see this elsewhere in Paul's writing. So if you think, for example, of the list of requirements for an elder in 1 Timothy 3, there are nine requirements there that are about character or um, social conduct or reputation in nature, things like being hospitable, not a drunk, and so on, and only one that is skills-based. Do you know what it is? The only requirement is able to teach. That's right. Which, um, uh, yeah, which just uh, reinforces what Paul is saying here. But, but think about how does that, so the pastoral issue we're talking about here is unity. How does this actually help with that? Well, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. The pastor who is teaching the word of Christ's gospel faithfully is going to be drawing people's attention to Christ, not to themselves. That is, he will want everyone, including himself, to be united around Christ. But the pastor who has given up being faithful to the message of the gospel, perhaps by twisting it to have another meaning, ignoring the bits that they don't like, perhaps by preaching a message that is not in line with the gospel, that's sure to cause division. That person is drawing people's attention either to themselves and how clever they are, or to a different Christ than the one that we meet in the Scriptures. So, as we think about what we want to be seeing in our pastors, a very key part of their answer is someone who faithfully holds out the word of the gospel as it has been revealed to us in the Bible. Okay, the third question. The third question we must be asking about our pastors as we think about this issue of um, having a proper unity uh, is, are they willing to suffer unjustly? As you probably figured from this series and even just from our readings today, Corinth was a prosperous city. It was a, a, probably a very good place to live. Uh, cultured, impressive from a worldly point of view. And it seems from Paul's description of the Corinthian believers that they are very much like the rest of the people in their city, comfortable, uh, experiencing what anyone would assume is rich blessing. Verse 8, if you jump to verse 8 with me, uh, we'll read Paul's assessment here. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich, you've begun to reign and that without us. Like Paul is aware of what it's like to live in Corinth. He's been there himself for a number of months as the church was established. Um, he's saying that for them it's like the kingdom of God has already come in its fullness and they are enjoying the party without Paul. Only the next part of this verse gives us Paul's assessment of their folly. They might be thinking, we've made it, this is it. But with great sarcasm, Paul says, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. You see, what the Corinthians have is what is sometimes called an over-realized eschatology. They think that the experience that will be ours at the end when Jesus returns and puts this world to rights, they think they have that all already. And so to them, Paul's experience just doesn't fit their categories. They're, they're experiencing the blessings, their lives are comfortable, their leaders are impressive, so they're thinking, what's wrong with Paul? He's so unimpressive. He's an outcast, a reject. So why pay attention to this person who's just not, doesn't seem to be part of the program, part of this program of God's blessing and everything that we're experiencing? Why associate with someone who, by every worldly measure, looks like a loser? Why? 
Well, because of course, the same was true of Jesus. Jesus, the Lord of the church, was an outcast and a reject. He was mocked and in worldly terms looked every bit like a loser. Paul models his life and his ministry on the cross. But the Corinthians have forgotten the cross. They've forgotten that the path to glory is the path of the cross. It's suffering, it's shame, it's humiliation. And so Paul's ministry makes no sense to them. Hear how Paul puts it from verse 9. So he says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like those condemned to die in the arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe. To angels as well as to human beings, we are fools for Christ. But you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. It's very clear from that last part, isn't it? Verses 12 and 13, that Paul is modeling his life on the ministry of Jesus. You know, when he says, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. You can see where he's getting that from. It's not that persecution is something to be desired or sought out, but Paul is a pastor who is willing to endure shame because he is a servant of Christ. And willingness to endure shame, harsh treatment, mockery for the gospel, that's the shape of his master's life. I guess the warning for us here is beware the popular pastor. If you're a pastor or pastoring people in some way, beware of loving popularity. The, pastors, the pastor that God's people need is not a popular pastor, but one who is faithful, even if it might mean being treated very badly. Now, I know we live in Adelaide. Everyone here is usually very polite. But the reality is that even in Adelaide, even to polite Adelaideans, the gospel is still something that causes offence. The cross is still foolish and offensive. Think about what the cross says to us. It, the cross offends in, in at least three ways that I can think of. It, it says that salvation is free, but we are very proud people. It's humiliating to realise there is nothing we can, can or could do to earn God's acceptance, that it must come as a gift. The gospel message is exclusive. We tell people there is no other way to be saved except through the cross of Jesus. Our world denies such exclusivity outright. They look at you like you've been living under a rock for the last 50 years and missed the memo on multiculturalism. They're like, what? Exclusivity? And of course, the gospel is about Jesus' lordship. It's an invitation to repent and to live a holy life in response to our salvation. But we all prefer to be our own boss. This is perhaps the most challenging aspect of Christian ministry and the most valuable attribute to be encouraging and embracing in our church leaders. We need people who are willing to suffer unjustly for the sake of the gospel, should the need arise. Rather than choosing popularity 
and, um, and compromising. Uh, we need people who will be faithful. And fourthly, to our, to our last question uh, that Paul gives us to ask about our pastors, and I'll, I'll do this one just very briefly, although there's actually a lot to say here, which um, uh, perhaps in your discipleship groups, if you are going to follow that, this up this week, um, could be an area to think more deeply about. We've heard, um, we've heard already the, ser- the, the pastor is, is someone who's meant to be a servant of Christ, uh, someone who's entrusted with the Word of God and, and must be willing to suffer. The final thing here that will keep a church properly united is the pastor who loves them like a father or a mother. The, the parental love is, is the thing that's important here. Uh, so verse 14, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. You see here, Paul assures them that what he's just written is not, is not meant to shame them. He's not trying to have a go at them and leave them without hope but he's trying to promote change in the same way that a good parent will be firm but not harsh with their children in order to see them flourish and grow. The guardian uh, that that is mentioned in verse 15, this was a a common feature of a typical Greco-Roman household, a a slave that would be employed to um, take care of the children, particularly take care of the children's education. Of all of the records we have of such guardians, uh, the pictures that we have of them always have them holding a rod in their hand. They seem to have been typically disciplinarians. Um, they would get their way by fear. And uh, Paul is saying, that's not what I am to you. He's a father to them. He loves them. He needs them to change because they have drifted from the cross Uh, They've drifted from faithfulness to Jesus, but his approach is firm gentleness, motivated by love. Okay, let's wrap up then. Uh, So how does this word connect with us? Just a few thoughts about how we might be receiving this word and and trying to respond to it um, as we we hear this today. So um, how how does this word connect? I think if you're in a pastoral role of some kind, so that won't just be for the Simons in the room, but people who have different kinds of pastoral roles, maybe you're an elder, maybe you're leading a a discipleship group, um, does your life and ministry look like this? Does it look like Paul's and what he's commending here? There will be some areas that you are weaker in and some that you are stronger in. It's true of all of us. Uh, This word is certainly a word for Simon and and people like myself, but for anyone who has a pastoral charge, like I've just said, there could be a a great opportunity here to just stop and reflect um, on those four key key questions and and bring your needs before God. He, He actually wants to see these things happen in your life if they're not there and happening as well as you know they could be. Uh, Paul's mo- uh, so God's motivated to see that change in your life. So do, uh, do bring that to him. Uh, one of the things that I, I found is that even after many years um, uh, in ministry, so an example for me would be the challenge to continue having that attitude towards suffering that Paul has. Um, like I, I've been doing this for, for many years, but I still often find myself shrinking away from doing things or putting myself in situations simply because I, I do prefer comfort. I do prefer to be thought of, as, thought of well. I do prefer popularity uh, more than faithfulness. I wish I wasn't such a chicken, but it's, yeah, deep down I am. And, and so I need to keep asking God for courage. And so what is it for you? I, I just encourage you to stop and think about, yeah, what, what would it be for you um, that you want to ask God for help in?
Uh, but what about those who don't fit neatly into that category of pastoral leadership? Well, I think the, the, the opportunity here is to see this chapter is written to a church congregation. It's not just written to the pastors, it's written to a church congregation uh, because there is a connection for all of us. And I think the way this chapter is very helpful is that it helps us to have right expectations of our pastors. This is a young church congregation um, so this, not the Corinthians, this church is a young church congregation. You've only been doing this thing for a few years, as far as I can tell. And, um, and many of you will have come here from somewhere else. Uh, or this is the first time you've been part of a church. How did you decide to settle here? What were you looking for? Many people make the decision to move church or to begin at a church based on the leadership that they see. But the thing is, sometimes we look for the wrong things in our leaders the superficial or the unimportant stuff, we get distracted by our pastor's dashing good looks or, um, you know, do they have a good sense of humour? Do they follow the right footy team? Are they snobbish about coffee? Whatever it is. Um, you know, 1 Corinthians, it, it actually, this chapter gives us a great deal of help if we're thinking, what am I looking for in a church? What, what sort of leadership do they promote? What sort of leadership do they have? What kind of pastors are leading because if we want to be a healthy church and, and flourish, well, Paul's reminded us we need pastors who are willing to live as servants of Christ, who hold out the word of the gospel faithfully, are willing to suffer unjustly, and love and lead their people like a father. We're going to lead us in prayer. Will you join me? Our Heavenly Father, we uh, firstly come before you uh, sorry for the ways in which uh, we are so given to disunity, um, to tribalism, and to um, even to uniting around things that don't matter, and which therefore, um, yeah, break the unity of, um, uh, the, yeah, the unity around the right things that you really want for us as your people. Uh, we thank you for Paul and, and the wisdom that is given to us this morning. Uh, thank you for the, the reminder that he's given to us about his own life and the way that being a servant of Christ for him uh, is so central and so important and, and plays out in, uh, in all the key ways that we've talked about. We pray that you would help us to hear his call, uh, to centre uh, everything in our lives around the cross of Jesus and around his gospel. We pray that whether we have a pastoral um, uh, uh, area of service or not, we, we pray that we would be people who love Christ and who uh, look to his cross and embrace it, uh, who are faithful to the word that you've entrusted to us and, and, and hold that out to others faithfully as well. Um, but we do particularly pray for those amongst us who have pastoral leadership and we pray that you would help them to keep on growing by your spirit to, to be more conformed to the things that we've talked about today. And we pray for all of us that you would help us to, uh, to love and encourage and, um, uh, and to promote uh, in our leaders and in, in our church community here uh, the kind of attitudes and, and, um, and priorities that, uh, that Paul has opened up for us in this chapter. We pray that this church would continue to be one uh, where 
we, we model and experience servant leadership, faithfulness to your Bible, a willingness to suffer, and uh, leadership which is not harsh but loves uh, in the way that a parent loves. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.